Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. He was the son, as was thought, of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mattat, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai, son of Joseph, son of Mattatias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Esli, son of Nagai, son of Math, son of Mattatias, son of Semain, son of Josech, son of Jodah, son of Joanan, son of Hrisa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Neri, son of Melchi, son of Adi, son of Kosam, son of Elmadam, son of Ur, son of Joshua, son of Eliezer, son of Jorim, son of Mattat, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Melia, son of Mena, son of Matatha, son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Salah, son of Nashon, son of Aminadab. If you are like most Bible readers, you might open the beginning of the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, or the end of the third chapter of Luke, and balk. In both cases, you are presented with long lists of names, most of which mean absolutely nothing to you. The Ancestors of Jesus. Who wants to read that? The temptation, if you don't give up reading altogether, is to just skip all of that and get to the good stuff, the stories and narratives about Jesus. But that might be a mistake. These lists do matter to the overall story. If you know how to read them, in fact, they are stories. Unfortunately, however, that is often not what people take away from them. In fact, most people who read them carefully usually come away with a problem that they think needs to be solved. You see, if you read the two genealogies of Jesus side by side, if you compare the names in them, they disagree in very significant ways. They both identify Joseph as the father of Jesus, or at least the seeming father, but then they give different names for the father of Joseph. Matthew says that Joseph is the son of Jacob, while Luke says that he is the son of Heli. They also both agree that Jesus is descended from King David, but they trace that descent through two completely different lines. In the Gospel of Matthew, that lineage is traced through the line of kings that succeeded David on the throne in Jerusalem, from his son Solomon through to the last king of Judah, 
before the exile in Babylon. But in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is descended from David's son, Nathan, who nobody has ever heard of. Neither have they heard of any of the other people between Nathan and Joseph. And usually, that's where people stop. They notice that these two accounts of Jesus' family tree are different. And for some, that becomes a problem that they need to explain away because, well, both genealogies cannot be correct, right? And if one is wrong, then the Bible must contain errors and mm, that is not acceptable to some people. Some try to explain it by saying that one of the Gospels is giving the family tree for Joseph, while the other is giving it for Mary. Some of you may have heard that one before. But it is an explanation that quickly falls apart, if you look at it. There is absolutely no way to read the original Greek text of either gospel as saying anything other than that these are the ancestors of Joseph. And besides, ancient people never trace genealogies through women. They didn't even think that women contributed anything to the genetics of a child. So the idea that a woman could contribute to someone's lineage was simply unthinkable to them. I know, I know. That is a foolish way to think of it, but patriarchal thinking is ultimately a very foolish way of thinking about anything. No, the contradiction is there. And you can't just explain it away. So, if you are someone who believes, as I do, that the Bible is inspired by God, what you must conclude is that that contradiction is there for a reason. That it is there because there is a truth, deeper than just a list of names that needs to be revealed. You are being invited to struggle with that contradiction in order to discover that deeper truth. And so, that is what I would like to do. Live in that contradiction for a little while and tell a story about what I find there. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 7.26 The Genealogies of Jesus A Tale of Two Families
David, the king, was dead. And as he was laid in the tomb, his sons, and he had many sons, gathered around. But two of them stood out before the crowd. The first, of course, was David's son, Solomon. And everyone knew why he mattered. He had already been anointed king and had even started to take over his father's duty before his death. Solomon was dressed in sumptuous robes and surrounded by sycophantic courtiers. But as splendid as he looked, Solomon was still just a young man who felt almost entirely out of his depth. He had barely survived a succession crisis and wasn't sure whether or not he would be able to hold on to the extraordinary power that had been passed on to him. The other key person who was present was a son named Nathan. No one really knew who Nathan was, but he mattered. He mattered a lot because he was the man who was charged with the care of the tomb in which David was being laid. David was being buried with his fathers, which meant that he was being placed in the tomb of Jesse and of his father Obed and of his father Boaz. It was also the resting place of an extraordinary woman named Ruth. Nathan was there because that tomb rested on a piece of land that now belonged to him. You see, while Solomon would henceforth live in Jerusalem, in a palace made of cedar, Nathan would remain and live on the land in a place called Bethlehem that had sustained the family for generations, ever since the days of Joshua, who had given the land to the people of Israel. God had made a promise to David through his prophet. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, God had said, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And as they stood around the tomb and gazed upon the beauty and the wonder that was the young man Solomon, the people present, Nathan included, 
had no doubt who would inherit that promise. If anyone could establish a kingdom that would last forever, it would be Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba. But you know what they say about power corrupting. That branch of the family went off the rails almost right away. Solomon quickly began to believe his own propaganda and use his power to exploit the people through things like forced labor. The richer he became, the more he acted like any other tyrant, lording it over all the people. He became a new pharaoh. Is it any wonder, therefore, that after he died, his great kingdom split apart? So the kingdom was greatly diminished. Yet the ruling dynasty endured. And it was true that some of them tried to do their best as rulers. They sought to reform the nation and set up systems to protect the people. But for every good king in the line of David, it often seemed as if there was one or more who fell far short. The kingdom limped along. It was almost destroyed by the Assyrians. It only survived their attacks by the grace of God. And then, generations later, came the Babylonians. The house of David failed that challenge entirely, made the wrong choice again and again. The final rulers of the house of David were taken into exile. Their kingdom, which had been supposed to last forever, was no more. Had the line of David failed? And where was the other line of David and the descendants of Nathan all that time? The most likely answer is that they remained on that same piece of land where they had been forever. The same piece of land where Ruth met Boaz while gleaning in his fields. The same piece of land where the boy David had returned with his flocks at the end of the day. They farmed the land, grew lentils, grapes, and barley. They never grew rich or lorded it over others, but they never made disastrous alliances with other nations either. They just subsisted 
It is even possible that, since they were not so important that invaders would care about them, they weren't caught up in the deportations of the Babylonian Empire. Maybe they just maintained that connection to the land. At least, we do know that that connection still remained generations upon generations later for Joseph, the son of Heli, even though he no longer lived on that land. He was living in the small hamlet of Nazareth, in the territory of Galilee. He didn't have any land there. He was only managing to get by as a day laborer on construction sites, building with wood and stone. That's likely what the gospel writers mean when they call him a carpenter. People often ended up living like that when their debts and poverty led to the loss of their ancestral farms. So, Joseph had lost the land. But I suspect that that had happened fairly recently, like within living memory of the family. I know that he hadn't forgotten it because when Joseph heard in the days of Quirinius, the governor of Syria, that a census was being held in Judea, he apparently decided to return there. Now, that doesn't make any sense in terms of the historical practice of Roman censuses. Romans never took censuses by requiring people to return to land that they no longer owned. That would be a pretty dumb way to take a census anyways. So, Joseph must have had a different reason for returning to Bethlehem. Maybe he was intending to use the registration of the census to lay a claim on his ancestral farm, reclaiming it according to the ancient biblical law of the Jubilee. In any case, it seems that he was serious enough in his intention to take along with him the young woman, Mary, to whom he was betrothed and who was expecting a child. He must have had a very good reason if he was going to take her on such a journey. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because, of course, no one was going to give them a proper place to stay on that piece of property that no longer belonged to Joseph.
I think you are missing out on a great deal. If you look at the Gospel of Luke's genealogy of Jesus, and all you see is a list of mostly unpronounceable names and a historical puzzle. Many people don't seem to get past the pretty obvious historical questions of how you reconcile these two irreconcilable genealogies, or how Luke could have even known who these ancestors were, given the very low literacy rates in Galilee at the time. But these are the wrong questions. They miss the point. I can accept the notion that God inspired both the author of the Gospel of Matthew and the author of the Gospel of Luke. Sometimes people seem to think that, once you accept that, the obvious conclusion you have to take from it is that whatever the authors wrote, therefore, has to be completely accurate information. But why? Accurate data is one good way to communicate important truths, but it is not the only way. And God is entirely free to inspire people to communicate truths in various ways. Genealogies in the ancient world did not work like what happens today when people do their family trees or order an ancestry service from 23andMe. These modern activities are data-driven, and if they are not completely accurate in all details, they really have no value. But ancient genealogies were more story-driven. It was about telling the story of the past and thus the future of a family. We'll never know where Luke got his list of names for Jesus' ancestors, at least in the generations between Heli and David. I mean, obviously, he got the part after that from the Old Testament. But it doesn't really matter if they came from a written record that he found, from family lore that had been handed down by word of mouth, or if they came from his own inspired mind. What really matters is the story he was telling. And he was telling a story about a very different kind of family than the one that Matthew was talking about in his gospel. He was telling a story of a family that had been sustained on the land that God had given them over so many generations, but who had somehow lost that connection to the land. He was telling a story about Jubilee, which was an ancient biblical law that was all about reconnecting families to the lands that they had lost. He was telling a story, above all, that would end with Joseph returning to that 
ancestral home with his betrothed wife. And, even if they were unable to reclaim that land, she gave birth to a son for Joseph on that land. And surely that meant something. What's more, the birth of that child would be the fulfillment of the promise given to David, but ultimately squandered by Solomon's line. I don't necessarily believe that Luke told the story of this family in this way because he knew it was historically accurate. He told it this way because he wanted to tell the truth about who Jesus was. And that is how I've come to understand the inspired genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode, wow, in a couple of weeks, which will be next year in our next season. Thanks for listening all this year. Please do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for this podcast is Ah Da by Kevin MacLeod, and the mood music of this episode was God Rest Ye Merry Keltishmen by Alexander Nakarada. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.org. I O. You can contact me on twitter.com at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast, and a special welcome to new supporter Ruth F. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com slash retelling the Bible. This is Retelling the Bible, and I am honored to be your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless, wishing you and yours a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Mm-hmm.